Dinah Lance is a fighter, and her one-woman war is against the czars of crime, the frightened men who dread the blonde bombshell, otherwise known as Black Canary. Welcome to Flowers and Fishnets, a Black Canary podcast. I'm your host, Ryan Daly. Got kind of a shorter episode today. I only have one comic to review, and then I'm going to hit some listener feedback that I didn't get to the last time. You ready for this? All right, let's go. Ladies up in here tonight, no fighting. We got the refugees No fighting. No fighting. Shakira, Shakira. I never really knew that she could dance like this. She make a man want to speak Spanish. Como se llama? Where are we going? At first we thought it was a breakdancing class, and then we thought it was a special needs class. Now we think it might be a special needs breakdancing class. Also, it's Brazilian. Slash hilarious. Sounds stupid. Oh, it's even more stupid than you could possibly imagine. Black Canary number 7 is cover dated July 1993. The actual on-sale date was May 18th, 1993. The story, titled The Dance of Capoeira, is written by Sarah Byam, penciled by Trevor Von Eden, inked by Bob Smith, lettered by Steve Haney, colored by Julia Lockman, and edited by Mike Gold. Studs Terkel and Mike Gold got special thanks mentions in the credits. Trevor Von Eden drew the cover, which sees Black Canary in combat with a brand new costumed villain in front of a burning house. The villain, whom we will learn is called Capoeira, is dressed sort of like a flamenco dancer. He's got tight black high pants, a red shirt with puffy sleeves, and a green vest. He wears a green cape and a black mask that hides the top of his head, like the Dread Pirate Roberts from The Princess Bride. The story opens with the same character from the cover image dancing for a crowd at Pioneer Square in Seattle. Dinah Lance, her friend Gan, and his lady friend Daryl watch the dancer. Dinah's narration explains the history of capoeira, a form of martial arts originating in 16th century Brazil. Oi, my name is Jairo. Welcome to the world of Capoeira. Capoeira is the most seductive form of self-defense. It combines peacefulness, fighting, and cardio in perfect harmony. Capoeira is breathtaking, but it is also breath-giving. You can advance through the stages by earning different colored cords at the Troca de Cordois. Wow, I thought maybe you were doing it wrong, but that's actually what it looks like. The poor peasants, who weren't allowed to train for combat, developed capoeira by combining elements of dance and acrobatics into a deadly fighting style. As Dinah watches the performance, she sees someone in the crowd slip a hand into the dancer's pocket. 
Dinah sneaks away and changes into her Black Canary costume so she can crack down on the pickpocket. But when she steps out, she discovers that the dancer himself was the real danger. He dances up to an elderly businessman, probably in a sexy Brazilian way, and suddenly his hand crackles with electricity. He electrocutes the old man, leaving a handprint scorched on the guy's chest, then leaps over the crowd. Black Canary tries to stop him, but he zaps her with his electro hand to knock her back. He hops on a motorcycle and drives off. Dinah learns that Gan's friend Daryl is an FBI agent who has been tracking this killer, codenamed Capoeira, for a year. Daryl hoped that Black Canary would help her catch Capoeira, but didn't tell Dinah that was the plan because departmental regulations forbid the feds from enlisting the help of superheroes. Since, I guess, the day before this story takes place, because I don't recall that ever being an issue in the DC Comics universe before this. Daryl and her partner, Risha, tell Dinah and Gan the story of Capoeira. I mean, the killer, not the dance-slash-fighting style. His real name is Jesus Valdez. He started as a migrant farm worker before turning activist and then turning violent criminal. A year after his mother died of tuberculosis, Valdez emerged in costume as Capoeira, the dancer. The abuses he long suffered as a migrant worker he revisited upon his former bosses and masters. He targeted wealthy landowners and killed them with an electrical pad on his glove, leaving the scorched handprint on each of his victims. While Dinah is learning more about Capoeira, we learn that the pickpocket from earlier in the story was actually Risha planting a tracking device on their target. We see Capoeira driving off on his motorcycle, throwing the tracker onto the back of a pickup truck to escape his pursuers. Away from the city, Capoeira starts a bonfire and begins to dance. His dancing attracts other poor peasants who come to the fire to dance and play music. Capoeira then stirs the fire inside these men and women, a fire that wants to burn the injustice and misery they have lived with their whole lives. Okay, just follow my lead. Capoeira turns his people against a landowner. They burn down the house, and Capoeira murders the rich farmer. The fire attracts emergency rescue vehicles, as well as Black Canary and her FBI partners. By the time they arrive, the farmhouse is a blazing inferno. Dinah runs into the fire to search for survivors, but all she finds is the dead farmer. A woman in the top floor cries for Black Canary to save her baby. The woman throws the infant down to Dinah, who catches the baby only to realize, to her horror, that the child is already dead. At the edge of the farm, Capora watches the house burn. He starts his motorcycle and begins to ride away when Gan catches up and tries to stop him. Capora slams his hand into Gan's chest, shocking him and throwing him back into the tree. Risha fires a warning shot to get Capora to surrender. Instead, he throws a knife into her wrist, forcing her to drop the gun. Risha calls Daryl for backup, but Black Canary arrives first. She fights Capoeira and realizes quickly that he's very dangerous. He has blades built into the tips of his boots and slashes at her shins and her face. Dinah needs an edge and some distance, so she leaps onto the edge of a work shed that has two water pipes running along the gutter. Black Canary propels herself into the air, flips, and comes crashing back down on the water pipes. They burst, splashing water on Capoeira standing below. When the water hits the electrified glove, his whole body lights up. Dinah says she thought it would only stun him, but he dies. Gan, we learn, survived his attack. 
He asks Dinah if she's okay. She walks away, telling him, no, I'm not. Yes, the story ends with the main character walking off after killing the villain, physically and emotionally strained, and announcing the fact that she is not okay. This might be the only story cliche from 90s comics that was used more frequently than the villain sitting at a desk hidden in the shadows. Besides that, though, the issue wasn't as objectionable as other stories in the series. There are problems, of course, such as the fact that the two feds, Daryl and Risha, are utterly pointless. All they do is complain about Black Canary while giving expository information about Capoeira, information that Dinah could have and should have gotten from Gan. That's another problem. Gan is in the story, but he's irrelevant as it is written. The script neither utilizes him nor relies upon him at any point. He could be erased from the story without changing anything important. But this is the kind of story where Gan should be front and center. Gan is an activist in his own right. He fights for he fights for civil liberties and equality. Gan should be the one telling Dinah about Capoeira and how a man with a noble cause turned to the dark side. But we don't get that. All Gan does is introduce Dinah to Daryl, who I already said is a wasted character that does nothing but deliver exposition in a boring matter-of-fact way. Black Canary, it should be noted, wears her classic high-heeled boots in the story, so the whole big deal about her losing her boots in issue 4 and getting replacements in the beginning of issue 5, none of that played out. And we see a close-up of her boots in this issue in one of the better moments of the story. When Dinah goes to put on her Black Canary costume, we see her change in the bathroom while an annoyed man knocks impatiently at the door. When the door swings open and Black Canary steps out, the man can only stare dumbfounded, completely ignorant of what he needed to use the bathroom for. Dinah's narration says, All the judo in the world won't disarm a man like a pair of fishnets. It's a good, funny bit and an idea that will be picked up during Birds of Prey. The highlight of this story is the villain. Bayam and Van Eden introduce, and promptly kill, a terrific new enemy for Black Canary's jailbirds. I love Capoeira. He's got an iconic design, like Zorro, without the hat and a little more color. His gimmick is unique, a martial arts form that combines dance and music. That's damn wonderful for a Black Canary rogue, because she's a street-level hero whose main power is her fighting ability, but there's always been the potential for a musical element to Dinah with her sonic scream. Capoeira plays right into Black Canary's strongest character traits. He also has a compelling, if underdeveloped, backstory. A poor, abused migrant worker who becomes an activist and then takes his crusade for social justice too far into the realm of vengeance. I can see Capoeira as a dark mirror reflection of Green Arrow, which is another striking characteristic that makes him perfect for Black Canary to fight. And he rides a motorcycle, which is what Black Canary often does. These two are perfect for each other. Capoeira is the excellent, probably the most perfectly conceived villain for Black Canary. I love this character. Probably the weakest part of his character is his weapon of choice, the electrified glove. This gimmick would be awesome if we hadn't seen Severance use the same type of thing the issue before this. Literally, one issue ago, we had another villain use the same type of gimmick weapon, with no explanation of how either man gets the glove. And because Byam never told us anything about Severance, or even whether he lived or died at the end of last issue, there's a lot of unnecessary confusion in this. It's like they came up with a cool idea and just kept on using it without any explanation. Even more than that, I don't think Kapara needed this glove. It does 
set him up as a super villain with some kind of superpower, but we see him kill with farm equipment and he slashes Canary with a stiletto attached to his boot. The electric glove either needed to be explored in greater detail or dropped altogether. The glove isn't the biggest problem, though. The biggest problem with Capoeira is that Black Canary kills him at the end. Or more to the point, Sarah Byam killed him at the end. Black Canary's bestest, most perfectest supervillain gets one lackluster issue before dying. I guess I shouldn't be surprised, but now that DC Comics are being told in a whole new continuity, I badly hope that some writer picks up Capoeira in the future because he has the chance to be Black Canary's number one jailbird. Either that, or they have to create a brand new character named Parkour. Although Capoeira incorporates elements of dance, it is a highly dangerous form of martial arts. Right. I'm sure it is. It seems like a great way to stand shape. Like jazzercise. Not like jazzercise. Whatever you say. Class, would you like to see a demonstration? Come on, Tina, let's let's go right now. Okay, okay, yeah, I saw your movements. Very cute. Hey, you can't do that. Just hit me with your hair. Stop that! Uh-oh. And now, Canary Correspondence, where I read your comments and give shout-outs to the people who promoted this show on social media. Twitter favorites came from DSNRS, Greg Araujo, Cash Flag, Diabolo Frank, and Anthony Durso. Twitter retweets came from DS and RS, Ange, and Diabolo Frank. The Aquaman Shrine tweeted, Binge listen to all seven eps of the Flowers and Fishnets podcast. Fun stuff. That tweet itself received five retweets and six favorites, so that's great to see. Anthony Durso tweeted, A new podcast to get through the workday. Just listen to all seven episodes. Hashtag Flowers and Fishnets. Greg Araujo tweeted, it would appear the logline for the 93 Black Canary series is filling a hole in our publishing schedule since and until 1993. Yeah, Greg. Yeah. Um, about episode 7, Greg tweeted several comments. Sargon the Sorcerer's next appearance is in the very next month's issue of All-Star Squadron. Was Roy trying to make him a thing? He also tweeted, JLA 219 and 220 answers the question why Superman doesn't invite Black Canary to the fortress very often. That's kind of connecting back to the previous episode when I talked about Black Canary in DC Comics Presents number 30. Uh, Greg tweeted, interesting that JLA 219 through 220 occurs just as the Infinity Incorporated's generation storyline is concluding in All-Star Squadron. I guess Roy had the JSA's children on his mind and felt like he needed to go one step further. I got a few comments on the blog page for episode 6. Chris and Cindy Franklin wrote, This issue sounds more engaging and less head-scratching than the first three. But man, there are still plot holes big enough to float an aircraft carrier through. The art, there are some momentary flashes of the old Von Eden in the pages you posted, particularly the Ali on page one of issue five. Dinah's proportions on that page are pretty extreme, but this is comics, and she does look rather fetching. Von Eden continues to give her shoulders like a linebacker, though. And then there's the splash issue, and then there's the spl and then there's the splash of issue six. Man, you weren't kidding. I can't decide if Dinah is suffering from a shellfish allergy and is excessively bloated. I like that. Or she's a ten-year-old boy in an inflated female body stocking. In that pose, where is the cleavage? Looking at it again, she looks like a hefty cosplayer bound into a tiny, tiny corset. <laughs> 
We've all seen those at cons. Not a pretty sight. And then Chris made some comments uh, about one of Frank's earlier comments about Nightwing in the comics. And if you want to follow those, you can just read those comments. Um, about Chris's comment, I pointed out in the comments section a glaring anatomical problem in the opening page of issue 5 where Dinah's left shoulder, her left arm, would not reach her left shoulder because of the way she's kind of posed. And you kind of have to look closely at it, but you realize that, no, she couldn't possibly be standing that way if she was a real person unless her left arm from shoulder to elbow was twice as long as normal. Still talking about episode 6, Ange wrote, I don't have these issues, so I'm glad that you are doing in-depth coverage so I can follow along mentally. The story seems better composed and with a better rogue than the opening arc, but that might be damning with faint praise. Uh, this seems pretty pedestrian. The thing that strikes me so much is the art. I was listening to this in the car, so I had to wait to look at this site to see the pages. I wondered just what Von Eden was trying here. The covers seem hell-bent on not being eye-catching. Whether the main characters are in silhouette or covered by a big flower, they are jarring, and not in a good way. And then the splash pages. Your reaction to number six is right on. She looks like someone in those inflatable sumo suits you see at fairs now. Her head is too small, the body too weird. The splash page for five is better, but this is the beefiest we have seen Dinah. There is nothing wrong with that per se, but it looks more like something from Harvey Crumb. I seriously think Von Eden is trying to mirror Frank Miller in this, in this series. I just bought Thriller number one out of a dollar box, and there he looks like he's trying to ape Bill Sienkiewicz. Yeah, and I've mentioned the Frank Miller influence before. An artist like Art Adams can make characters, particularly women, look big in a voluptuous way. That's not what Von Eden does in these issues. They just look puffed up, almost blocky. Uh, got a few comments from Diablo Frank naturally. Uh, he complained about the comment feature on Blogger as opposed to on WordPress, where the actual blog writing and drafting interface on Blogger is much better and much more user-friendly. I hear what you're saying, Frank. I used to have a WordPress blog. The Blogger page is much easier to work with, but I always leave comments on Rolled Spine's WordPress page because that's easier. Go figure. Frank asked, why does the PJ Harvey of a few years ago sound so much like the Liz Fair around the time these comics came out? I don't have an answer, but I do have a list of Liz Fair tracks to use in this podcast at some point. Frank said, I quite like Dinah's big fleshy thigh on the splash page and in general during the series. Besides the sex appeal, those gams look like they could really do some damage when she makes like a rocket across some mope's mug. You know what I'm already super duper sick of in comics? Hipster dipsticks and their practical hoodies and sneakers. I'm starting to think they're all just lazy, unimaginative, deferred cosplayers. I'm cool with a Batgirl revision and Spider-Gwen, as far as I'm ever cool with parallel universe versions of popular characters and core continuity, but the Matrix Spider-Woman hurts my eyes slash brain, and it's kind of the new insta-tired priest collars plus busy piping. Nothing says paranormal acrobat like superfluous strapless sunglasses and a leather zipper vest, but I guess the artist who can render her extremities as solid black silhouettes would be very committed to the design. What are they going to do in Portland when this goes the way of buckles and bomber jackets? I agree in that I don't like the new Spider-Woman costume. I'm fine with the Batgirl costume as they seem to have really kind of downplayed her age, even though she's still a college grad student, but they make her, they present her as acting younger. So I kind of like the new costume. I have nothing to say about Spider-Gwen that doesn't appeal to me in any way. 
Um, and also, Frank, are you suggesting that bomber jackets aren't popular anymore? He goes on, blind is some kind of 1993, huh? Still, it sounds like you need to feed the jailbirds with an eyedropper, so she'll serve. Even in the radical New 52 revision of Black Canary, I've started writing in my brain because of your damned podcast. She still works. Much less impressed by Severance. Was it Enter the Dragon or its extended parody in Kentucky Fried Movie, where the main villain had a variety of tricked-out prosthetic hands, including a claw, flamethrower, and marital aid? Love that. I grew to like Eddie Fires during the Chuck Dixon run of Green Arrow, where I suspect he served as a mild writer proxy and excellent contrast to the naive, principled Connor Hawk. Remind me to work them both into the new 52 Black Canary revision that keeps me up at night. Ollie's not inclined to use them, and they're better than he deserves anyway. The calculator certainly stepped up after Identity Crisis, but it doesn't seem as though he made the transition to the Oracle-less New 52 very well. Even if Monty Moran had gotten that particular nod, it would have just made him less of a Martian Manhunter meanie and more of a generic DCU villain, as happened to the Human Flame around Final Crisis. They're not mutually exclusive anyway, as Calculator is an information broker slash contract negotiator, and the Getaway King a gadgeteer and extraction expert. If anything, they should team up and clean up. Jon Stewart is demonstrably the best Green Lantern corpsman, but is hampered by being the non-white, sometimes exasperatingly competent Hal Jordan in a world that prefers charmingly crap-headed Caucasians. Mosaic did a fine job of differentiating Jon from Hal, except it did so by making him the art film take when, again, the masses want Han Solo with a magic ring. Mosaic wasn't the most accessible book, but when it was good, it was very good, and I was on board as soon as they ran over Chip with a delivery truck. I'm not sorry Black Lightning nor Stewart served as the first African descent Justice Leaguer, though, since it makes the heroine Vixen that much more special. New Jack Swing holds up so well and should have had long-standing broad appeal, but it came out at the exact wrong time to compete with po-faced grunge and gangster rap during the great fracturing of the music market into niches. Yeah, I was actually surprised to find out that the song If I Had No Loot came out in 93. I would have assumed it was like 1988 or 89. Uh, Frank commented on episode 7 as well, saying... I think the very licensing-friendly but surprisingly unemployed Chuck Patton was probably the best artist for the first volume of JLOA. As much as I love George Perez, I associate him much with the Teen Titans and Avengers that he's mildly distracting on the league. Also, Perez needs to illustrate highly emotional melodrama, and that's not what I want from the league. They're the icons, the pantheon, our idealized, stable, four-color parental figures. Chuck Patton got that. And while he was no super-polished Jose Luis Garcia Lopez, praise be his name, he had the Bronze Age sheen of a Dave Cockrum or Bob Layton with the broad expression of a Jim Aparo or Al Milgram, but with the congeniality of John Romita Sr. He should have been DC's Mike Zeck, but my understanding is that he had issues with his editor or editors, and the lightness that suited the league so well wasn't quite suited to the Titans, though he would have fit far better than Ed Barreto ever did. All that having been said, Patton had no business drawing Vibe and Gypsy on the mean streets of Detroit, and Luke McDonald was far more appropriate on that incarnation of the team. I hear your point about George Perez, Frank, and I actually agree with you about him being suited more for the melodramatic, emotionally nuanced team books like Avengers or Teen Titans. Of all the artists who worked on the first volume of Justice League of America, I think I like Dick Dillon's output the most, partly based on the sheer volume, sure, but also on the aesthetic. Chuck Patton would come in a close second. Frank said, Of all the things I loved about James Robinson's Starman was his willingness to go there with older, more adult characters in their quietly sorted, 
good-slash-bad old days. The Ted and Dinah fling added dimension to both characters and was far more palatable than Black Canary's decades on the back end of Green Arrow and... I agree, and I said so. Frank continues, The wizard belongs on murderer's row amongst the Black Canary's jailbirds. It really speaks to the second-class status of women even as recently as the 1980s that this crime against a heroine and her daughter went unanswered in follow-up comics. William A. Zard needs to be revisited in some context to address his crimes. Reasons you probably never want me to write Black Canary number one. I would totally play Larry Lance as an only slightly younger contemporary to Richard Drake, with whom she worked through her daddy issues and then defer to Ted Knight for working out her more immediate aerobic needs. I kept rewinding sections of this episode because my eyes would glaze over for long periods as you guys tried to explain the plots and rationales related to this wretched tale. I'm not willing to parse this mess out for all the reasons you mentioned and more I could offer if it were in any way worth the sort of effort. It is not. My primary concern, and you touched on it briefly, is why this travesty was brought into existence in the first place. If it was a priority for Roy Thomas to have Earth-1 and Earth-2 canaries, why kill off Dinah Drake and forget to reference her from then on? Was it some burning, cancerous need to over-explain the canary cry? Is it as sad a spectacle as requiring canary to be made younger? Whatever. None of it matters. This was an abomination. So, clearly Frank loved these issues, but what did Ange think? He wrote, weird beyond weird, creepy beyond creepy. I don't have these issues. Am I to understand that even though she was in suspended animation, the baby grew into healthy adulthood, like a bizarre empty vessel? Yeah, pretty much, Ange. Uh, Thunderbolt took the baby to the T-Bolt dimension and basically induced a coma. Baby Dinah slept but grew into the form of a beautiful young woman, but essentially had no mind of her own, at least none that we ever see. Ange also wrote, I suppose this was the way to get around the age difference and sonic powers, but this is so convoluted and so Jerry Springer, I want to jump your bones, but you're my dad. Brrr. Glad this went away post-crisis. Yeah, Crisis on Infinite Earths definitely fixed this problem, but I think we all agree this was a very, very avoidable problem in the first place. And that's all for this episode. If you enjoyed the show, you can leave a comment on the blogger page, blackcanaryfan.blogspot.com. There you can contact me with any questions or comments. You can also find me on Facebook and on Twitter using the handle at blackcanaryfan or at ryandaily01. Or you can also search for the username Count Druncula. Flowers and Fishnets is not affiliated with DC Comics, and the views expressed on the show are mine alone. All music, audio clips, and quoted text are used for entertainment purposes and are believed covered under fair use. And I make no money off this podcast, so no copyright infringement is intended. Thanks for listening.